Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. My name's Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. Today my guest is debut author Jane Jesmond. Her thriller On the Edge is a moody psychological drama with plenty of action. It's set in Cornwall and for some readers it will conjure images of Daphne du Maurier's books. The protagonist Jen Shaw is a daredevil free climber. But as you'll hear from Jane, she wouldn't quite put herself in the same category. So let's get right to it. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Jane. Lovely to have you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Paul. No problem at all. I'm looking forward to this. Um, so this is your first face-to-face interview, I believe. Is that right? It is indeed. Oh, well, we're honoured then. So for us now at this moment in time, we're very near to the publication date of your novel On the Edge. Um, by the time people listen to this, actually, it may have just come out. So how are you feeling about everything as a debut author? A mixture of hugely excited because, right. um, as for many debut authors, this has been a long time coming and um, deeply trepidatious, if that's a word. <laughs> Are you going to get a chance to do many events? I mean, online, uh, perhaps, you know, but. Um, quite a few on- online stuff. Yes. Mm. Um, but I don't think I'll be doing any live events until after Christmas. Right. A lot of a lot of bookshops and libraries have only really just started. Yes. Just started up. So. Yeah. No, it um, is. It's very difficult, and especially with a debut author these days. You know, at least if you've got a few books out you've sort of got a reputation behind you haven't you and people are a bit familiar but uh anyway it is what it is so we just have to make the best of it going back to the start then have you always been a big reader oh (laughs) (laughs) absolutely enormously um in fact I started I taught myself to read before I went to school because I, I I I wanted to read so much and I don't enjoy being read to and I remember at primary school, my friends used to hide their books when I came around to play, because otherwise I'd just spend the whole afternoon sitting <laughs> on their bed, desperately trying to finish a book before I had to go home. But yes, reading has, uh, you know, since before I went to school, reading has been my favourite pastime, and I have always loved it. Right. And where does mystery fiction fit in? Or does it? Um, oh, it does. But I, I love all sorts of all sorts of books. Um, I read, I mean, obviously as a child, I read all the Enid Blytons, the Secret Sevens, the Famous mm. Fives. Um, so I had an early baptism into mystery fiction. And I, I have always loved the genre, but I'm I'm equally fond of um historical fiction. Um, I studied English at university, so mm-hmm. I ended up reading quite a lot of literary fiction and enjoyed it. I'm, I'm fairly um, wide-ranging in my tastes. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good, good thing anyway. I don't think you know, anybody should come to genre writing without the grounding generally anyway. Um, actually, I saw something you mentioned the other day, and I just, it's a sort of a side really, but you mentioned um, Anthony Price, the spy writer. Yeah. Is Indeed. he one of your favourites? Definitely, definitely. Oh. I, I mean, I don't think he's very, he's so popular these days as no. as he used to be. But he is a fantastic writer, really intricate 
um, stories, um, very dark in some ways, um, and just a, a fascinating range of characters. I, I absolutely love him. Well, I never miss up a chance to talk about some of the greats. And for me, I think he is one of the greats by writers, but he stopped writing at the end of the Cold War. And yeah. unfortunately, his name has slipped a little off the list. You know, he's not, people talk about Len Dayton and they talk about Le Carre, but they don't tend to talk so much about Anthony Price. So we're starting today a campaign to put Anthony Price back at the top of the table. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm right with you for that. <laughs> Well, let's let's turn a little bit to the novel, but start in general terms. I wanted to talk about um, some of the inspirations for On the Edge. Um, so tell us a little bit about your love of Cornwall and why it's such a good setting for the novel. My mother's family come from Cornwall. Right. And it, it's always been a place I absolutely loved. I have the most wonderful childhood memories of it, both in summer when the weather is fantastic and when mm. even back then it was full of tourists. But we also went down for Christmas and during winter when it's a completely different, mm. there's a, just a completely different sense of place to it when the storms come in and the cloud descends so low that it, you sometimes feel it's almost touching, touching the, um, touching the land. And so, you know, I find that, that contrast quite interesting um and it's just full of the most magnificent places to to have fun with um there are the moors there's the coast there's the coastal path with the little coves and um and then i think for me too it's also got a really fascinating history and Mm -hmm. culture um you know, everywhere you go, you see remnants of the tin mines. Yes. Um, I'm, I find the the whole history of mining really interesting because, it you know, it goes back far earlier than the 18th century, right yes, back to course. the Romans and the right. Celts. And when they first started mining the tin from the streams and then followed the seams down underground, which was how the first mines got made. Um, it's also, you know, it's also linked to the Arthurian legends. Yes. Um, and 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 the, the you know the Celtic ancestry is very important. It's very exciting too. I think particularly for writers, it's a great um, it's a great source of inspiration. And then also for me, of course, there was Daphne du Maurier, right. who um, was um, who lived in the same part of Cornwall that my family come from, mm-hmm. and so a lot of the places she writes about were places I visited as a child. Um, the Bodmin Moors, where Jamaica Inn was set. Um, so, and some of the little there's a little cove not far from not far from where my grandparents lived, which is called Pridmouth Cove, but it is in fact Rebecca's Cove, right? With um, with the house that Daphne du Maurier lived in, Menabilly, um, just set a little bit further back, further back, that was the inspiration for Mandalay. And although I didn't, I never intended to use Daphne du Maurier. I think because some of these right. places have crept into my novel. Um, there are sort of tropes that have come from her. 
No, that's interesting. Yeah, because um, I think, well, uh, let's start with something, go back a little bit before the Daphne du Maurier thing about the history of the place. There is something romantic, and it, it obviously goes into the writing as well, but there's a bizarre kind of romanticism about smuggling as well. You know, we, we don't look at any kind of crime with the same kind of um, fondness, in a sense, do we? No. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and, of course, there's the Cornwall is associated with smuggling. I mean, it's part of the Cornish psyche, in a way, to believe that the sea is, is their empire. It belongs to them. And mm. Nobody should deny them the right to bring in what they to bring in what they choose yeah. over the sea. Duty and free. so yeah, absolutely. So you have this, you know, fantastic history of whole villages being involved in bringing brandy and lace and and other spirits over from the continent and all conspiring to keep it a secret from from the customs men. Mm. And um you know, but obviously it has a phenomenally darker side. Oh, that, yes, absolutely. That, 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 that isn't, um, ex, you know, that, that isn't part of the romance. Mm. But it is the sort of thing that's sort of passed down then through the literature as well, isn't it? Yeah, you very know, much. Talk about yeah. Jamaica Inn and so on, you know, we're, we're yeah. putting this romanticism into it. Were other authors important to you then, Susan Howitt, for instance, or uh, Rosamond Pilcher, were they an influence <laughs> or...? Just generally in the background. Just generally in the background. But their Cornwall, I think, is a slightly gentler, softer right. Cornwall, maybe, than the Cornwall that, that inspired me. Okay. So that's interesting because when you talk about the Daphne du Maurier, I, I, saw, I suppose I might have assumed from reading the novel that you'd actually deliberately riffed on Daphne du Maurier. But you're saying that's not the case, you know, so it sort of slips in. So what I'm asking in a way is, is it the atmosphere in a sense that is sort of the thing that seeps into the novel, you think? I think it is definitely the atmosphere that seeps into the novel. Um, you, it's also my memories of Cornwall rather than specifically the place, if, mm. that, makes, if that makes sense. Um, just as a slightly side issue, I always meant when I was doing the final, before I did the final ed edit of the right. book, um, to to go to Cornwall and specific, specifically to go around all the places that I had used in my in in my book and just make sure I've got some of the details correct. Right. And then, of course, the COVID pandemic happened, yeah. and I, I, I was absolutely unable to do that. <laughs> So I, I have in places kept it as slightly general. Most of the places in the novel are amalgamations of, of memories of mine. From, yeah. from Well, memory is a very live thing. I think, it, you know, it's not to be underestimated. I saw something you said the other day, actually, or you asked people if they still daydreamed. Yes. Interesting. Um, that came about really because um, I'm continually being asked if I'm a plotter or a panster, which I suspect maybe something you might have been going <laughs> to ask me. And um, that, that made me think about how much time I spent as a child, not only reading and immersed in the worlds of the books, 
Right. But how that also transferred into a kind of daydreaming existence. Yes. Um, I daydreamed a lot as a child. I remember going for long walks or going for riding rides on my bike and actually deliberately, as I, as I moved, thinking stories out in my head that might well have been based on a book I'd written or, or had just come to me from, a, from, um, from my imagination. And I was quite interested really to know if other writers had done that too and whether that was some kind of precursor to, to writing. Well, that is interesting because you've always written. Funnily enough, I was talking to Laura Lippmann and one of the things she said to me was, when I asked her about, you know, what do you enjoy about writing? One of the things she said was, I get to play. And it made me think, you know, the one thing we do with children is we batter them into square boxes and take all the imagination and everything out of them. And I thought, you know what, that's a really great way to put writing. You know, I just play. This sounds fantastic. Oh, it is. I mean, in particularly the first draft where the world is your oyster. You can, yeah. you can go wherever you want. It's very exciting. So we've also now established that not only are you a big reader, but actually you're also a writer from a very early age. Yeah. And you continued writing. Tell us a little bit about that, but also the journey then for On the Edge and, and how that came about. I wrote quite a long a, time, wasn't it, in the process? Yeah, it, it has been. I, I, I wrote a lot as a child and as a young adult. And then as life, as, as for so many people, as life took me over and yeah. the requirements of work and things like that, um, I, I, I stopped for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Then several years ago, a couple of things happened. We, we slowed down quite a lot on the work front. My son left home. Um, suddenly I had a lot more time on my hands and my mother died quite unexpectedly, right. uh, which really left me with a feeling of, um, you know, you have to go for it while you're still, while you still can. And, yeah. and so I started writing again and I just sat down and wrote a novel, which is hidden in a drawer somewhere. Um, and so that one won't see the light of day. Will no, it? no, that, that one will definitely not see the light of day. Not, no, never see the light of day. But having written that and realised I didn't have a clue about how to write a novel, I then did start to, to do some courses and, and talk right. to other writers and, and essentially start learning the craft. And in fact, On the Edge was the book I wrote after that. Mm-hmm. And I have written two other books since, and I've learned a lot from all three. Right. And in between, I've gone back to On the Edge because I, there's always been something about that book that, uh, that I've always been very tied to, to the protagonist and to the book. Okay. And so okay. I've gone back each time, and I think in essence taken the lessons I've learned and rewritten it. So it has been a long time coming to um, publication. Mm. And along the way, I'm sure a few rejections, but in the end, actually, you had a few people chasing you for the book, didn't you, when you chose yes, her? Yes, yeah. That must have been nice to be in that position. It was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really can't tell you. It's just funny how, you know, an email arrives one day and that's it. Everything has changed. Suddenly you're a writer. Indeed. Or a recognised writer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think we should talk to people about the book now, On the Edge. Um, but I want to start 
very specifically with the inspiration for the novel, and I hope I've got this right. Um, the inspiration was an, uh, a lighthouse. But is it yeah. right to say that that's actually in Brittany? It is indeed in Brittany. Okay, tell us a little bit about that to start with. Okay. I, um, I had finished my first novel, which by then I'd realised was really not a success. Um, right. And I was, so I was looking, for, I was looking for the right idea to start a second novel. And I was driving home late one night. I, I live on the coast in Brittany. It's terribly similar to Cornwall where I live. Right, yes. It, it was dark. It was pretty blustery. It always is pretty blustery here. And I passed the lighthouse at St. Matthew's Point, which is just down the road from where I live. And it is the most magnificent lighthouse. And there it was in front of me with its, its beam just shooting out around the sky. And I, I just stopped. Yeah. I mean, I'd seen it before, but mainly during the day, I think. So I just stopped and I got out and I had a really good look at it. And then just suddenly this idea of someone hanging from the lighthouse came to me. And I, I knew then that that was going to be where my novel started. And right. I've said On the Edge has gone through a lot of changes um, over the years, but that is one of the things that has been constant throughout, just that image of the person hanging from the lighthouse. Well, yeah, and it's brilliant because as an introduction to the book, it's, it's an absolute grabber right from the start. You know, people are just, you're going to get gripped by this. You're going to want to know what happens next. It, it's that. Um, so why don't we tell people about On the Edge and a little bit about the, the story, the scenario, please? I'll do my best. But it's quite hard without um, giving, not giving I, too much away. Yeah, well, you can imagine I have this nearly every time I interview somebody. I, I come with a good question and I write it down. I think, no, you can't ask that. <laughs> But, but anyway, the novel does start with the lighthouse, with the storm, with Jennifer Shaw, Jen Shaw, my protagonist, hanging from the edge of the lighthouse. Yep. She's unconscious and dreaming and has no memory of how she got there. Right. But being a passionate and expert climber, which is very much one of the key parts of the book, she manages to climb her way to safety. And so the book is really about her discovery as to how she got there. Yes. And um, it takes her through uh, a lot of dangerous and hopefully action-packed elements. Um, uh, she mixes with a lot of quite strange people, and um, it was fun to write. Right. I think that's saying enough. I think people will get a really good idea of where you're going with that. And as you say, we don't want to spoil this for anybody. So we have a daredevil character in Jen. Yeah. Um, and actually, the first thing that struck me is I'm sure I heard you say somewhere that she came as a fully formed character. Is that right? That is, that is absolutely right. She was the next thing that, after the lighthouse, she was the next thing that came to me. Um, because obviously the first thing I started to think about was who could possibly end up hanging yeah, off right, the right. lighthouse. And actually she, it was almost as though she got in the car with me when I went back. And, and by the time I got home, I just knew her. Now that has, 
that has happened to me before and since with minor characters, but never with a major character like that. And I, I have always known, I have always known what she thinks and how she speaks, and it's it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think it's brilliant though, because of course this is where we get to this thing. We're starting to get to the plots and panzer thing. Because obviously um, the whole thing is generated by Jen. The whole novel is sort of generated off what would Jen do? And that's what we begin to find out. And that's how we tell this story. Um, but she also has the, there's some, a, an ordinary side to Jen as well, in a sense. I mean, one of the things is she's been away for a while and there's a specific reason why she left home. Um, but when she comes back, of course, she's got to deal with family. Mm. So was that important to you too as well, though, to put this sort of family aspect in, you know, and get, get that kind of grounding? It's in, it was enormously important to me. Right. Um, I, family is enormously important to me. And right. I don't think you can understand a person without, without seeing their family or hearing yeah. about their family from them. And Jen is very, very much, the character of Jen is very, very much rooted in her upbringing, which is pretty bizarre, mm. in her family, who are quite eccentric in some ways, in, in Cornwall, in the house she was brought up in. It, it's all there. Yeah, absolutely. I have to ask you then, because we're going to, obviously Jen is, is we've said, that the, the protagonist but also the the kind of mainstay of the novel um how many free climbs have you done <laughs> well i um i have no head for heights whatsoever right um the most climbing i've ever done is the stairs i'm strictly <laughs> i'm strictly a not go above the second rung the second rung of a stepladder but do you know, it really doesn't stop you understanding the attraction. Oh, right. Um, I, I, have done, I have had to do quite a lot of research, obviously, to, to, to write what I, you know, reasonably, I hope, authentically about Jen and her experiences. But, but her slightly more mystical side of... Um, Climbing, which which is very much also part of her psyche, mm -hmm. you know, the love of being up high, the urge to do to do something different, to do something slightly risky. I think that's something in us all. Whether we are, whether it inspires fear in us, or whether it inspires us to go out mm. and do it, we. I think she like, actually goes and does it. She actually goes and does it. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> So no, really, I mean, sorry, go on. No, no, no. Well, I was going to say then, it is really this desire to sort of understand what is the psyche of somebody like that. And that's, that's what gets you to Jen. And did you talk to people who do this sort of thing? You know, was that the sort of research or? Um, I didn't talk, I did talk to some climbers, but on right. the whole, they don't want to be thought of as adrenaline junkies ah, or yeah, Real climbers take take their practice very seriously. Yes, right. Okay, so um, that's um, th that. But yeah, no, that makes I, sense. Now you now you put it that way. It does make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah because in fact, in fact, I got um, 
somebody from the British Mountaineering Association, I think it was, has actually read the mountaineering part, the, the climbing parts of the yeah. book for me to check for any obvious errors. And I have to say, he was quite horrified. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. Never mind. No, but I, I was, um, there are some American climbers who I was very interested in. Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgson, I think right. that's how you pronounce his name. They climbed, they free climbed the Dawn Wall. Ah, yes, I remember that. Yeah, which is a huge, um, for anyone who doesn't know, is, is a 3,000 foot rock face in, yeah. in Yosemite National Park. Which and is- they, free, they free climbed it. And it was, I watched that. It was fascinating. Mm. I maybe should explain what free climbing is because it's not. Please, yes, good idea. Yeah. Yes, please okay. do. So, in, when you free climb, you're essentially rock climbing, um, and you use ropes in case you fall. But you cannot use the ropes or any other aid to to actually climb up mm. the mountain. You have to use nothing but your feet and your hands and your body to grip the rock. That's free climbing. Yeah, absolutely. And that rock you were talking about, it said, what, 3,000 feet, did you say, or 3,000 meters? It's around 3,000 yeah. feet, yes. And it, it's it's like climbing a massive ruler. It's that flat it and straight, and it, it just <laughs> looks like climbing a wall. It's, it's incredible. It's yeah. So um, we've talked about Jen and Jen driving the plot, and you said the first draft was like an out-of-control toboggan going downhill. You don't know where you're going, but it's a blast while you do it. Um, I think that makes it pretty clear. You're a pantser, not a plotter. <laughs> I don't think we can, uh, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, but how was that experience of writing it then? Because obviously it's very organic in that case, but did it sort of then just flow naturally? I can sit down and just write. I oh, can sit handy. down. Well it, yeah, well, it is and it isn't. I can sit down and just write. However, <laughs> um, I have learned over the years to um, to plot because my first draft of On the Edge was wild. Right. I mean, it was it just it went everywhere, and and the, my first big job with On the Edge was to just throw away at least three quarters of the plot. Oh, okay, right. And hone in on what was on what was important. Mm. And, and although I love writing like that, it's very, very time consuming. So in more recent years, I have taught myself to do some kind of planning before I start. Not the details, but just to have some sense of where I'm probably going to end right. up and some of the landmarks on the way. And then normally I just let myself go and write a and write a helter-skelter first draft. And then I do the... Well, I was going to say, what about the ending then? Was the ending always clear or was that something that you came to? No, and in fact, my first drafts, often I don't have the ending. Right. Um, I I might write a sort of half-hearted ending, but but in, in a way, getting to the end reveals to me the things I need to go back and work on and sort right. out and establish. So um, I do all that in the second draft. Yeah, that makes sense. We talked about smuggling. You do raise some issues in the book, and I don't want to go into too much detail because, again, we, we don't want to spoil things for people. 
But um, the smuggling's changed over the centuries. Obviously, it's no longer brandy. Or, well, I don't know that personally, but I mean, I'm assuming that's not the principal product these days. But no, of course, we've got drugs and people smuggling and things like that. Just mm. as a general rule, do you think it's an idea that um, a thriller can actually carry a sort of social issue? I just think they do automatically. Yeah. I think um, crime fiction, which thrillers are obviously a subgenre of, um, it's an extremely moral and ethical form. Um, there's always, the, the, you know, the question of values is is very strong mm. in 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 crime fiction. Yeah. I think the answer to your question is absolutely, yeah. That that, that does, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, sometimes people just say, you know, and I'm only entertaining, but I've rarely read a a thriller where I think, no, it's just about the entertainment. You know, there's always something there because that's what we buy into as people, isn't it? We buy into the characters and we buy into the stories that we're being told. Yeah, I I completely 100% agree. And although on the edge you know, it should be fun to read. It was written to be fun to read, mm. to, be, to be an enjoyable experience. But there were certain things that were very, very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I try very hard not to be lazy with my characters, mm-hmm. but to, to, to make them as real as possible. It was very important, particularly my portrayal of women. Um, right. I really dislike... I mean, I appreciate that women are often victims, but I think there's an. They can be portrayed. I think fiction often portrays that side of them far more than their capabilities, their Mm -hmm. strengths. Um, And that was very important to me. But that was easy to do with a character like Jen Shaw, anyway. Yeah, because she is such a strong character. But it is important. It's very important. It's more important now than ever, perhaps. You know, I'm seeing a lot of um, victim-centered fiction. You know, where the killer's identity almost is is not relevant in a sense. You know, because it is all about the, uh, the victims, and that's that's important as well as very exciting. But to lighten it up a little bit, um, do you like the nuts and bolts of writing a thriller? So putting in the clues and the red herrings. And, oh, and I mean, actually, and, and also I'd like it because you also have to, a couple of great chases. You've got the tin mine incident, the moors. And again, we won't tell people too much about them, but these are all parts of the sort of the tropes of the thriller. And you enjoy that, do you? I absolutely love that. And I will be honest and say that when I started writing, I, I really didn't think I'd end up writing thrillers. Right. But I get a sort of couple of chapters in and I just find myself throwing some jeopardy or danger or something completely unexpected I see. Um, in to see how my characters dealt with it. And, and then I think I realised that that was where my heart was in terms of my writing. Well, that's lucky for us thriller writer, uh, readers, sorry. Um, so what's next? Because what's when, next? Mm, we're always sort of ahead, aren't we? You know, we, we're getting to the stage where um, On the Edge is being published. But you, of course, are well ahead of us as readers. Well, I'm currently um, in the middle of my the second draft for um, book two in the Jen Shaw series, mm-hmm. which which I'm really enjoying writing, and I just hope that everyone will enjoy reading it as much. And I've taken Jen out of Cornwall and right. put her in 
some other interesting places and um, thrown some other quite disconcerting um, situations at her. So um, that is interesting. And I've also picked up on some of the themes. I, mean, I don't want to talk too much about themes. No, I understand. I do understand. It is essentially, it is essentially a thriller. But nevertheless, there are there are things that happen in book one that need that are worthy of some developing. That's fair enough, and that I think that's more than fair to say that. So, how about um, something? Because do you get much time for reading now? When you're writing, it's slightly different sometimes. Um, I read invariably every evening. Right. Um, I'd rather do that than watch television, actually. So, yes, I'm always reading. I'm with you there. How about a recommendation then, something you've read recently? And again, it doesn't have to be a thriller. You know, it doesn't have to be a crime book. Something you've read that you think people will be interested in. Um, I've recently read a book called Phosphate Rocks. Um, which is written by Fiona Erskine. Erskine, yep. Erskine. I'm not 100 percent sure how you pronounce it. Thank you. Too. Uh, I absolutely love that, and strangely enough, my husband did too. And it's very rare for us both to agree on a book. Right. But it's it's um it's oh yes, let me get this right. A long dead body is mm-hmm. discovered in an old 1970s fertilizer factory, I think it is, in Leith. And the body is covered in phosphate rocks, hence the title. And I think it's it's obviously been there for years and years and years. And there are 10 objects found with the body. And the police call in the previous manager of the factory, and he tells the story of the body, I think, via the 10 objects. And so it's a murder mystery. It's a murder mystery. Mm -hmm. But it's also a fascinating insight into into life in that fertiliser factory with quite a lot of chemistry thrown Mm -hmm. into it. And it's, but it's just the most wonderful mix of characters, of story, of information. And it just oozes life. And I'd strongly recommend it to, to anybody. If my husband and I can agree on a book, then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll put a note on the, on the title page so that people can see that and, and they can pick up on that themselves. Jane, that's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, too. It's been a real pleasure. It's lovely to be around that kind of um, enthusiasm from a debut author. And thank you very much to Jane for that. On the Edge is available from Verve. I'll be back with another interview very shortly. But for now, bye and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>